How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Candid Clarinetist, the podcast where we explore the lives on and off the stage of professional clarinetists, musicians, teachers, and leaders of the orchestra industry. My name is Sam Rothstein, assistant principal clarinetist and bass clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of The Candid Clarinetist. Today's guest is currently the second clarinetist, assistant principal, and E-flat clarinetist with the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. He also recently spent one season as the acting second and E-flat clarinetist with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. He and I were in the same graduating class together at Northwestern, and I have long admired his playing, positive attitude, genuine personality, sense of humor, and love for music. I'm so excited to welcome a dear friend of mine, Ben Adler. Welcome to the program, Ben. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for those kind kind words, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really happy to be on here. Is is that um, you know the opening little recording? Is that you playing? Yeah, it's me. Uh, a friend of mine wrote that for me, and he had me record the clarinet parts. So so there's obviously there's the main jazzy little bit, but there's also in the middle of it there's a hit, and and I actually played like the bass part the middle part and the treble part together and we spliced it together. So, so all the clarinet playing is mine. Nice. It sounds awesome. Yeah. It's really fun. I was, I was really happy with it. So uh, I usually start out with a little icebreaker. So I wanted to ask you if there's one piece of clarinet or musical equipment that you own that you just can't live without, what is it and why would you choose that particular item? And so it can be anything really. It can be a mouthpiece, a particular instrument that you own, a piece of technology, a recording device, or like anything? Like what is one thing that you have related to music in your career that you just, you know, you're going to use for the rest of your life? Uh, well, I hope it lasts for the rest of my career, but my, uh, probably my Momo ligature. Oh yeah. So I, I actually had Jonathan Gunn on a couple of weeks ago and we talked about those a little bit and how they've kind of been, you know, rising in popularity. So can you talk about like how you got yours and, and what you like about it? Yeah, sure. I um, basically I emailed him last year, or I was probably a year and a half ago at this point, and uh, I just ordered one. I should have ordered like three or four, but uh, you know they're kind of kind of expensive, and I just wanted to try it out. And so I I got it, and you know it's been great. Like the best ligature I've ever played on, just really resonant, and you know can create a whole lot of colors, nice sound, good articulation. It's it's just, I've been really happy with it. Yeah, they're really like, basically they're all handmade, at least from what I understand. And, you know, like how long did you have to wait for yours? Was it like nine months or so? Yeah, right. It takes kind of a while. Actually, mine only took about, let's see, probably four months Okay, for him to send it to me. I've been, I don't know if I should be saying this, but I've been trying to get in touch with him uh to get some more but i i haven't been successful (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's 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 funny that they've kind of got gotten a following recently in in the united states because you know when i was talking with jonathan he said that 
when he got his, him and Richie Holly, when they were playing in Cincinnati together, they were on tour in Japan and they went into his shop and, you know, he had some there for them. But, you know, they've obviously Jonathan has had to order some again Mm -hmm. and he, you know, he's had to contact him through the website and stuff. So it's, it's interesting that now a lot of people are kind of catching on to them and they're becoming more and more popular. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know when he started making them. I just heard about them from a few uh, colleagues back when I was at Colburn. Uh, So that was, I don't know how long that was seven years ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was the first I heard about it, but it's probably probably been around for a while. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, so my answer to this question is is actually not clarinet related, but it's it's a metronome that I have. And it's called a Peterson body beat. I don't know if you've heard of these before. Yes, you introduced that metronome to me and I bought it uh, after after you told me about it. It's been it's been great. Yeah, so this thing was like life-changing for me. So for our listeners out there, the feature of it is that it has this vibrating clip. And what this does is it allows you to use the metronome. So I usually attach it to like my pocket or my sock or something that I where I can't hear the metronome. And so it really helps you like internalize rhythm. And it was a total game changer for me. It was introduced to me by Michael Wayne, who's now the professor of clarinet at the Eastman School of Music. And it's, it was a total game changer for me for auditions and for just my internal time and ability to play in rhythm. And I, I can't recommend it enough. I think now they actually have a, a version where you can plug it in your phone and you can use like one of your phone metronome apps so you don't have to mm-hmm. buy the actual metronome. But it's, I, I highly recommend it to anybody. It's, it's really a, an excellent learning tool. And then for me, a close second would be my, actually my bass clarinet case which is kind of a silly answer, but it it's just so lightweight and it fits in all overhead compartments on airplanes, which is if anyone traveling with a bass clarinet knows, it's kind of a, it always stirs up a bit of anxiety when you're trying to travel because you don't want, you know, you obviously don't want it to be put under the plane. And so this case is just small enough that I can kind of sling it over my shoulder. And if I act what I, like I know what I'm doing, you know, I haven't really ever been stopped and had to check my, my case. So that's been a really nice peace of mind for me to have that case what brand is that case it's it's a bam case so it's actually mm-hmm. the the case now that the tosca based clarinets come in mm. before the buffet started contracting with them they they made those cases and so uh, my first job was was with a touring broadway show and i had to play clarinet e-flat clarinet and bass clarinet and so right when right. we would travel on planes i had to carry all my instruments with me and it was great because i could put my clarinets and my bass in that one case and then i could put my e-flat in a backpack so i could carry everything on the plane so great. So now, can you take a minute and just tell us about where you grew up, uh, when you took up the clarinet, and of course, the schools that you went to and who you studied with? Absolutely. Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and both my parents actually are professional clarinet players. My mom teaches at Hofstra University, and my dad, he's a doubler. He plays on Broadway uh, and, and does some teaching on his own. Uh, so you know, they encouraged me to play music and, and pick up an instrument. I first started playing the piano when I was five, and then I started playing clarinet when I was nine. So I was playing two instruments at the same time, and I decided to, to stop the piano, which I kind of regret now. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. If there's one regret I have about my musical career, it's that I didn't continue 
learning and playing the piano because it's such a transferable skill everywhere, you know? Absolutely. There's so many things you can do with the piano. And, and you know, if you're learning a piece, it's great to, to you know, play it out on the piano with all the chords and stuff. But I just, <laughs> I'm not very good anymore. So yeah. I don't, I don't use that tool. Uh, but my parents, they kind of discouraged me from playing the clarinet. I obviously was influenced by them to start it, but, you know, they, they didn't want another <laughs> clarinetist in the family, which I don't, yeah. now I don't really blame them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I was uh, persistent and, you know, kept at it and just, you know, they, they eventually. They came around to you. Yeah, they, yeah. they came around. But yeah, my mom was my first teacher. Uh, she's a great teacher. She's she's still teaching now, and I think she's a really great musician, um, as well as my dad. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of that kind of background, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as schools, I so I went to I went with you uh, to Northwestern mm -hmm. and studied with Steve Cohen there. And then I went to USC for my master's and studied with Yehuda Galad. And then I went to uh, the Colburn School and also studied with uh, Yehuda there. And was that for a uh, performance certificate? Yeah, that was a artist diploma. Artist diploma. Okay. Yeah. Well, cool. I, and you know, I, you you obviously mentioned this, but you grew up in in a clarinet family, which is kind of unique. And so. Can you tell me what it was like to just like always be around the sound of the instrument? Was that, you know, big influencing in you choosing the clarinet? Like, was it like clarinet or nothing for you? Um, like, did you consider other wind instruments or was it basically just like my parents play clarinet? And that's what I want to do. Yeah. You know, my mom, both of them practice throughout the day. Um, maybe not as much anymore, but when I was growing up, certainly they were practicing throughout the day and my mom would teach lessons at home. So I would, when I was really young, I would just sit on her lap throughout the whole lesson and just yeah. kind of take it in. But you know, this, there's things that she would play routinely in her uh, practice that, you know, were some, some excerpts or some etudes that, uh, when I started learning them, they kind of were just in my ear already, which was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So there were there were some things that that were, I guess, easier in that way. But it it can be a bit of a struggle, <laughs> you know, living with two other uh, clarinetists as parents because, you know, coming home from school, you know, they would sometimes tell me if I'm doing something wrong, which, which sometimes is helpful, sometimes not, um, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I'm, I like to be, I, I think of myself as being very independent. So with them kind of telling me what to do, it got on my nerves at, yeah. at some point. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Because, you know, to, I mean, we all love our parents, but to a certain extent, you know, they they have their idiosyncrasies and like, I mean, your, your parents, not only watched you grow as a musician but they also just did that themselves so like a lot of a lot of other parents they'll watch their kid grow in a certain career but you know most of the time they didn't end up doing that career so for them to have that kind of like eagle eye on you must have been you know kind of interesting yeah it was um i mean it still is 
interesting sometimes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just going home and and you know, I mean, I practice there too now uh, when I'm home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it's uh, sometimes we have we have some conflicts, but uh, we've grown to get through our conflicts and and coexist. Yeah, that's probably the best way best way to put it. Um, <laughs> So in, in the same realm, though, do you, like, I feel like if I had them, I mean, there's, they're both, you know, amazing musicians and teachers and, you know, do you, do you ever go to them for musical or clarinet advice? Like, do you say, hey, you know, what do you, you know, what mouthpiece are you guys trying now? What do you, what do you feel like I could work on? Like, I feel like having that resource there could also be really valuable, you know? For sure. Yeah, we, <laughs> we nerd out and talk about equipment. Um, maybe more than we should. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, some we we go to each other for advice, um, and I, I think they they respect me enough to to have a conversation more as more as a colleague rather than you know a teacher student relationship. Yeah. So it's yeah, I, I think we we've we've come to the point where we can talk about things in a way that's that's respectful toward each other which is which is pretty good yeah that's really cool i i'd love to have that i mean you know obviously i have my teachers and my mentors and my colleagues that i that i go to but to have like loving parents and you know thanksgiving dinner table you guys talk about clarinet equipment it's just a <laughs> kind of it's kind of a whole other level you know um but that's really great that you that you have them and and, uh, you know, I'm sure they're very, very proud of what you've accomplished and, and are continuing to accomplish. So, you know, I know that we, you know, we both went to Northwestern. You were a year behind me and I actually ended up graduating in the same class as you. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was a student, I, I kind of, I don't want to say I was naive, but I was pretty naive. And, you know, I didn't really understand the responsibilities of each position in like a clarinet section. So in Milwaukee, you play second clarinet, associate principal, and E flat clarinet. So can you explain like what on any given week, like what parts do you play and when do you play them and like how all of that is decided? Because I think even for an audience member or whatever, they don't really know like why someone's sitting in a certain chair. I mean, they know obviously like you have the principal clarinet and you have the bass clarinet, but sometimes people wear different hats. And I think with your position, uh, you wear the most hats, you know, I always like Mm -hmm. to call it the Swiss army knife. So, um, yeah. So can you just kind of explain like, like how that all works? Yeah. So basically since it's a three person section in Milwaukee and my position as assistant principal is, I guess less of a principal role than associate principal in a four person section. So I'm basically playing all the time. You know, we, we try to, to rotate it as much as possible so that I'm not, you know, overworked, but I guess the majority of the time I will be, I'll play second clarinet to Todd Levy mm-hmm. and there will be some uh, overtures or, concertos or even some sometimes the the main piece on the program that i'll play principal and that's when todd's not playing correct correct yeah yeah so that mm-hmm. that would be uh, me and, and bill helmers great bass clarinet player mm-hmm. in our orchestra 
yeah, so so Bill will be playing second to me, uh, and if if Todd is gone, then I'll, you know I'll play principal the whole program, and and we'll maybe hire a sub or something like that. But, but yeah, so and then uh, E flat clarinet, I'll I'll just play whenever there's an E flat part uh, in the piece that we're playing. So then when you move over to E flat, depending on the piece of music, so like a Shostakovich symphony for like Shostakovich five, you know there's there's uh, first, second, and then E flat. So you'd play the E flat part, and then Bill would play second to Todd for that piece. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then of course, if there's four parts, you would play E flat. Bill would play bass, and then they'd probably bring someone in to play second clarinet. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy how you have to wear so many different hats. And I know for me, I'm I'm in a similar position in my orchestra. The only difference is is I play bass and third instead of e flat and second mm -hmm. um but it can be kind of disorienting i feel like because you're you it's amazing that even sitting one chair over from what you're quote unquote used to it, like sonically you just get all completely different information mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you know i know when i play principal like i hear all of the other woodwinds mm -hmm. and when i play in the clarinet section i'm mainly just hearing like the piccolo and maybe the second flute and the, the clarinet section so it's mm -hmm. it's just kind of a it's I, I find it very challenging uh to switch positions so frequently and it's you know a requirement for a job like yours yeah i i totally agree with that uh different different perceptions of sound when you're in different chairs um i notice when i'm playing principal i maybe it's just the part of the hall that i'm playing in but it feels like i'm playing louder than I would in the second chair. And what you said, just hearing different instruments more predominantly than if you're in another chair. And the same with E flat, like it's the total opposite end of the section. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're you're hearing the piccolo a lot and and uh, the right side of the orchestra. Um, yeah, and I don't know how you guys are set up, but you know, like when I'm playing on the end, I hear a ton of like harp and piano and like mm, yeah. percussion and stuff. And you know, when I'm playing first, I don't get much of that stuff. So it's just, it's, it's, you know, like I said, it's kind of disorienting and you have to like recalibrate really fast because sometimes, you know, like for instance, you have to do it on the same program. So you can't just sit in the same chair for the whole program. Right. Yeah. I notice it especially when we're like right before rehearsal when we're all warming up it's kind of a totally different universe <laughs> yeah it, it and you wouldn't think so because it's only a couple chairs but it makes a huge difference yeah i also notice when i'm playing principal i play on harder reeds than when i'm playing second clarinet uh, i don't know if that's something that that you feel i guess you're when you're playing third uh versus playing principal but um you know, as a principal player, I think you you need to have a, a bit of a beefier sound, uh, and a harder read will do that. But I think as a as a supporting role, you need to be very flexible and play really soft. And I think a, a lighter read has that flexibility. Is that is that how you feel too, or am I totally? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, and even the way I support is different because mm. you know, and. and everyone has different thoughts on this, but I always think that playing second clarinet is really difficult because, but at the same time when I'm playing second clarinet or I'm playing in the clarinet section, 
my main goal is to blend with the clarinet section. That is like goal number one is mm -hmm. create this sort of clarinet section sound together. Whereas when I'm playing principal, I feel like my goal is to blend with the woodwinds. Mm -hmm. And when you have a bassoon, a flute, an oboe, and a clarinet, it's actually really challenging to get a good blend. I think it's much more challenging than to get a good blend of a clarinet section. So mm -hmm. for me, that's like the biggest difference between playing principal and playing in the section. Um, but I do agree with you that like just the way you support, you need to like give a little bit more as principal because you you know you're you're leading the section and your sound should be leading in a lot of cases. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, having certainly having a heavier read or a little bit of a heavier setup will help with that. Right, and I I like what you said about um, the role of the second clarinet player. I, I think. In some ways, the the second clarinet is kind of the the core, or in some ways, the leader of the section, because uh, you're kind of providing the spine of the section, and mm -hmm. it's it's definitely you know it's it's a supporting role, but it's also a, a solo um, instrument in the orchestra. I mean, there's only one second clarinet, whereas there's you know ten or twelve second violins or you know, a, a, another string section. Um, so it, it's it's definitely not not an easy job, especially switching between second and and first and, and E flat. Yeah, it's it it's all it's all hard. It's all challenging, you know. Um, <laughs> and it's you know it it takes years to figure it out. I mean, I still, you know, anyone who claims to have it figured out, I think is lying because. You know, I mean, in our industry, I mean, truly, we're learning until the day we retire. Right. Because right. um, you have to. You have to, to adapt and get better and learn new things. And, and you know, playing all those different positions is just, just hard. And, you know, I think most of all, we just learn to manage them more than anything. Um, mm. and, and, of course, we get more familiar and it's, you know, becomes easier over time. But, but there's always new challenges, for sure. Totally. Yeah. Music is just a never ending learning experience. And, you know, if, for those of you out there who, who are aspiring musicians, just know that you never quite figure it out a hundred percent. You know, it's, it's always, you're always learning something and that's, that's yeah. part of the, the challenge and part of the reward of being a musician. Absolutely. And in fact, this is a excellent segue unprompted, but very well done. <laughs> um, so you are founder and artistic director of a new online clarinet festival called the Clarinet Maestro. And the faculty looks absolutely incredible. Uh, I, I'll just run through it really quick just so people get an idea of who's going to be teaching. Uh, so obviously there's yourself, uh, Effendi Yusuf, who's principal clarinet of the Cleveland Orchestra, Andrew Sandwick, who's the bass clarinetist of the Dallas Symphony, Edgar Lopez, who's the acting assistant principal and E-flat clarinetist of the Baltimore Symphony, Eric Abramowitz, who's the assistant principal and E-flat clarinetist of the Toronto Symphony. Michael Yoshimi, also a fellow Northwestern Wildcat, is uh, on the clarinet yep. faculty at the Colburn Community School of Performing Arts. Signe Sommer, who's co-principal clarinet of the Norwegian National Opera. And of course, Yehuda Gulad, who is your teacher and the professor of clarinet at Colburn and the USC School of Music. So can you describe your motivation for creating this festival and like what kinds of things can a student expect to experience and learn during this week long curriculum that you've created? So this, this is the first year and we're hoping for it to con continue into the future. 
my inspiration came in two ways. Um, you know, due to the what's going on right now with the coronavirus and the, um, all the cancellations with summer festivals, you know, there's a need for classical music learning. Um, and I figured that, you know, nobody will be meeting in person and it'll, it'll all be online. Um, so it was a, just a great way to kind of close the gap and, and create something for students who are in need of uh, summer learning opportunities. Um, and uh, the the other motivation behind this uh, was my former teacher, Yehuda Galad, who uh, opened up his weekly master classes to his former students, which I was very grateful for. And, uh, you know, the master classes stopped when the school year stopped. So I, I kind of wanted to keep something like that going. And what better way than to to have him and his former students teach this festival in in this in this way and i think that's one thing that's really unique about your festival is that every faculty member studied with yehuda yeah all of us all the core faculty are are former yehuda students and we just want to you know, promote his his message and and his his teachings to a, a really broad audience. That's great, man. Um, so, can you describe like what kind of content is going to be available for them? Is it going to be like master classes? Is it going to be lessons? Is it going to be recitals? Like, what's the what's the game plan? I guess so to speak. Yeah. So basically, there are three ways in which somebody can participate in this festival. Uh, there's the maestro plan, which has private lessons. You'll participate in master classes and workshops. Uh, there are open forums where we discuss topics like um, audition preparation and performance anxiety and different ways to optimize your practice. There's also a student recital and actually faculty will have a recital as well. Um, and, and then there's there's also the option of just viewing if you don't want to necessarily play or, or take lessons. Uh, you can view the whole festival uh, as what we call a maestro subscriber. And obviously you won't view the private lessons, but you'll view the master classes and open forums and, and recitals. And um, there's also another option where you can view as view a single class or or more um, as an a la carte member. Uh, and most of the classes are only $5. So you can see Effendi Yusuf teach a master class for the price of a coffee. So I, I, we're, we're trying to make, sorry. So that's fantastic. I mean, that's just, it's great that you're doing this and that you took the initiative to fill a need that's, that's clearly out there. I mean, every single festival has been canceled, at least in person. And you know, what better way to learn than from some of these, you know, amazing young players and, and of course, the, the maestro himself. Yeah, it's, we're hoping to make this an opportunity for the, the world. Um, part of the uh, proceeds to, or actually all the proceeds for the uh, recitals, the student and faculty recitals, 
will be donated to Global Giving's Coronavirus Relief Fund and um, the United Nations Children's Fund. So we're we're um, going to be donating to them um, as well. That's awesome, man. That's that's really great. Um, so is there still room available? And how can you know if I was interested in signing up? Uh, how can how can someone sign up? Yeah, we have a few spots left uh, to participate in the Maestro plan. Um, and you can sign up, uh, apply at uh, clarinetmaestrofestival.org. Uh, there are, uh, the, and the application deadline for that is July 1st. There are also some scholarships available for that program. And uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of running out of room in it. So <laughs> should apply quickly. <laughs> Soon, yes. But yeah, the, the viewers, uh, the subscriber and, and a la carte uh, people can can uh, can sign up for that as as uh, as late as they want. The festival starts uh, July 13th and it goes to July 18th. That's great, man. I think I might have to uh, to poke my head into some of those master classes and discussions. That sounds. Um, I mean, I one of my favorite things about you know, talking to everyone is just, it's just learning from other people, learning from peers. I mean, uh, just, just having you at Northwestern with me was such a valuable thing. Cause I, you know, I learn, I love my teachers, but I I've always felt that I learn the most from my peers. And so learning from all these different, just fantastic players and teachers is something that anyone can take advantage of. Yeah. You know, I, I, I feel lucky that I'll be able to to see all these great players and teachers teach at this festival. I mean that that's you know selfishly is uh, part of the reason reason why I started the festival is just to 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 gain from other from other people. Like I said, we're always learning from each other, and it's it's just this is I hope a, a great way to 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 do that. Yeah, and sounds sounds really fantastic. And if anyone's interested, definitely check out their website. And you know, if, even if they fill up by then, make sure to get some a la carte masterclasses and and soak up as much information as you can, so that when we can all go back to learning and playing in person, we can we can come out better than when we entered. So, since I am an equipment guy myself, as you probably have. <laughs> come to know over the years um i always like to get, ask our guests what about their setup and and what you're playing on so i know you, you talked about your ligature a bit but can you can you tell us like what your what your clarinet setup is and and how, how why it works for you absolutely yeah i play on a pair of festivals buffet festival festivals and uh currently playing on a bd5 mouthpiece mandoran Let's see, and uh, the Momo ligature and size four reeds, um, Van Doren V12. Uh, sometimes I, I'll play on three and a half plus. It kind of depends on the time of year. Summertime, usually I'll kind of go down and strength a little bit. But um, for the most part, I play on size four. Cool. And and have you always played on, I mean, I know the BD5 is sort of a recent thing, but have you always played on Van Doren or is it, you know, you kind of switch back and forth or, you know, were there other things that you used to play on? Yeah, I, I kind of switched back and forth. Um, so I've been playing on Van Doren 
probably for the past five years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I was playing on on Cantor mouthpieces for a while. Dongjin Kim, I played on his mouthpieces for a few years. When I was playing on on Zinner Blanks, I'd play on on Walter Grabner's. Um, yeah, I've I've switched, you know, back and forth uh, between I guess between Van Doren and and other mouthpieces. Uh, yeah, yeah, the BD five is kind of interesting. Uh, not to get too technical with it, but it it, it was something that I I've tried multiple times, and it just it never really worked for me. Uh, I don't know why. But um, recently they came out with this BD4 model, which is mm-hmm. a little more open. And I've actually been playing on that recently. And I mm-hmm. really, really like it. It's kind of the same, it, it, almost the same sonically, but it has a little bit, it's a little more, uh, it just has a little more ping to it, I feel like. And and I feel like that's what I always missed in the BD5. But obviously you're a fantastic player and plenty of fantastic players play on the BD5. And it's been hugely popular ever since it was released. Yeah, I actually like the BD4 a lot myself. Um, I bought one a few months ago. I, I didn't really have many to choose from, so um, it maybe wasn't the best mouthpiece for me um, out of the, the three that I had. But once, I don't know if, they, if they've started to have an influx of them, but once they have more, I, I'm definitely going to, try some more and, and, and try to get the one that's good for me. When did you uh, start playing on yours? Um, I got it back in February, I want to say. And this was like, right. I, I mean, you know, I you basically couldn't get them um, mm-hmm. in the U S at least. Cause I was just, you know, I was kind of looking, I used to play on a B 40 liar and, you know, I was looking for something that was just a little bit easier sound production wise. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was working too hard and, you know, so I've, you know, I knew these were going to come out. And so I, I got a couple back in February and one of them I didn't like, but this one I really, really liked. And I've just kind of been messing around with it ever since uh, we've been in quarantine and just kind of like taking this time to sort of dial my equipment in, in a way that I was never able to do before. Cause it was always like concert after concert, after concert flying by the seat of your pants kind of thing week after week. And you just had to find something that worked and stick with it. So this time kind of gave me a chance to sort of reevaluate my equipment and really um, find something that I really love and really works for me. And I've been super, super happy with the results so far. The one thing that I will caution is that it is a very sharp mouthpiece because mm-hmm. as of right yeah. now, at least to my knowledge, they don't have the 13 series available, which is, which is the lower pitch version. But if you counteract it with a longer barrel, um, you can usually make it work. And I've really liked the early returns on it. So I'll be interested to try it in the orchestra whenever I get the chance to do that again. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it Mine is a little bit on the sharp side also, especially when I kind of diminuendo to a, a really, really soft dynamic. Um, mm-hmm. I've noticed when, when you were talking before about the, uh, the BD4 having a little bit more ping, I, I do agree with that. And, I think the BD5 can be a little dull sometimes, or at least some of them. Mm-hmm. But I, I think if you if you find a BD5 that has a little bit more of a higher voicing, um, with a, a little bit more of that ping that you're talking about, then it it can be really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, 
I think that's maybe the direction that Van Dorn was going with the BD4 is to, is to try to get a little bit more of that that brilliance in the sound um, and and trying to kind of steer away from the, the dullness of the, the BD5 a little bit. Yeah, and I think too, one thing that we've been we've been sort of talking back and forth about is when you're trying new mouthpieces, it's always good to try, even of the same model, it's always good to try, you know, a batch of them and not just get one or, you know, just order one off Amazon and whatever you get, you get. Because they are significantly different between one or the other. And it's not due to the manufacturing or anything. It's just kind of like how they come off the line. You know, everyone likes something slightly different. And right. so, you know, it's it's definitely prudent to, when you're trying mouthpieces or any equipment to try, you know, I like to at least try four of whatever I'm trying, whether it's mouthpieces or barrels and, you know, a lot of times I just won't pick any and I'll have to send them all back. But yeah, I was going to ask you how many you try before you pick one. Yeah. Usually I liked, well, um, when I was playing on B forties, I would probably get like eight to 10 hmm. and I'd usually pick one or two of them that I, you know, felt had potential, but obviously the BD fours are just hard. Like you, you mentioned, they're hard to get a hold of right now. So, um, you know, I think if you, if you try two to three of them, you can get the gist of what they're all about. You know, but ideally you want to, you know, like I said, try four or more. Um, sometimes it's not feasible, like with bass clarinet mouthpieces, a lot of right. custom ma makers won't have, you know, huge stocks that they can just send out for people to try. So, um, but it is important to try more than one, even if it's the same model. Yeah, I, I always think the more the better <laughs> for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's good too to try them with, uh, Yes, yeah, so we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but I think it's good when you're trying equipment too to try it with different reads, different mm -hmm. um, not only strength but different cuts of reads. Because I found, especially especially with Van Doren mouthpieces, like I'll get a mouthpiece that is absolutely fantastic if I use a very specific like V12 size three and a half plus read, mm -hmm. and if I use a V12 size three and a half, the mouthpiece just won't work at all. Hmm. or if I use a traditional four, it won't work at all. So finding the, the match between the reed cut and the strength and the mouthpiece is really important. Hmm. And so I, I caution people not to just discount equipment just because it doesn't work on the reeds that they have. Sometimes you do need to try reeds in combination with the mouthpiece in order to you know, really know what it does for you. So do you play on different cuts of reeds usually uh, when you're throughout the year or is that just something that you do when you're trying equipment? You know, I don't, I, I have most of the mouthpieces I try now are kind of the same tip opening roughly. So the reeds that I use will be kind of what they need to be. Um, I play on traditional Van Dorans um, and with the BD4, I play on size four traditionals just because that's kind of what works for me. But usually I hover around three and a half to four. Um, for some reason, a couple of years ago, I just, or I guess it was about a year ago, I stopped using the V12s. They just stopped working for me. And I tried traditionals and they were they were the answer. And I've been, been there ever since. So it might be a little unconventional for most people. But if you haven't tried traditionals in a long time, I, I recommend giving them a shot and, and uh, see if they work for you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 
So cool. Uh, so I know you're a huge baseball fan, even though, unfortunately, you have the curse of growing up as a fan of the New York Mets. I know that's a really, <laughs> it's a sad life for you, but uh, I can commiserate a bit with you because I'm a Cubs fan. And until, you know, three years ago, it wasn't, it wasn't a good scene for us either. But uh, I just, I know like baseball is like your favorite sport. And, and what, what is it about it? That's like your favorite part? Like what, what, what is your favorite part about baseball? And like, I feel like it's so uniquely American and it's just so uniquely different from every other sport. So can you just explain like why you have such an affinity for it? Yeah. You know, my dad is a huge baseball fan, so I probably got it from him. Um, But yeah, I mean, I love everything about it. It, it, My favorite time of year is the summer springtime and that's when baseball season is. And um you know, it's just uh, the nostalgia of of going to games and and watching on TV. Uh, you know, the the Mets broadcasters are are great. They're great commentators, um, really funny. So it's kind of like a show whenever you tune in <laughs> to see. Them. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they're like for the Cubs, but um, they've changed recently because they had. Um... Bob Brenly and I can't remember um, the guy who's still there. I can't remember his name, but they were, you know, the broadcasters, you know, throughout basically the two thousands and they've, you know, they've rotated a few new people in cause they, you know, these guys all have the, their, their local contracts. And once they expire, they usually go to a different station or whatever. But um, yeah, for me, like, I just, I mean, you obviously live in a great baseball town now. Milwaukee's like crazy about the Brewers, um, and that's a really fun ballpark to go to. Like, have you had a chance to to experience some games there? Yeah, and it's it's great because when the season starts in April and it's still thirty degrees out, there's a retractable roof uh, that closes, and you can enjoy the game in you know sixty five degrees rather than thirty degrees. So yeah, that's really nice. That that's the one. Um, I guess uh, perk of, about being a, a Brewers fan or, or watching the Brewers play versus the Cubs. Cause the Cubs still have that, you know, the regular field, which is, which is great, but it's can be pretty, uh, pretty brutal in the early part of the season. Yeah. It's a little antiquated. It's just like, I mean, it's cool. Cause it's like one of the few ballparks that are still left in the middle of the city. You know, there's not like a giant parking lot around it and whatnot, but in, Late October, you know, hope, hopefully late October, um, <laughs> <laughs> on a good year, late October, or the early part of the season, it, it can be really cold there, um, and not a great place to watch a game. <laughs> yeah, I remember going as uh, an undergrad at Northwestern. I would go to a few Cubs games, and I think maybe there was one game out of like ten that I went to that was comfortable to sit in. <laughs> like it was yeah. either way too cold and windy or rainy uh or it was really hot so yeah it's like scorching hot because it's also super humid in chicago because of the lake and everything and so you kind of have to get lucky on a good day you know maybe the night games during the summer tend to be the best ones to go to just but again wrigley is you know this is maybe a little bit too inside baseball but wrigley you know for the longest time never did any night games so the right. night games are still kind of like a new thing. Um, but yeah, it's 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 not a great place to watch the game, but it's a, you know, it's the team I follow, so I, I 
I, I still, I think, prefer to watch from home uh, just for financial reasons and otherwise. But uh, yeah, those tickets, that you mentioned. Cost, those tickets yeah. cost a lot of money, right? Yeah. And, you know, it, I mean, they just redid the stadium, but it's still like not a great facility. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's nostalgic and it's cool because it's old and famous, but it's uh it it doesn't have the amenities that that a lot of the modern ballparks have but to me like there's no i mean i don't even you know i i i do follow the cubs but i just love being at the ballpark man like you know we have a minor league team here in indianapolis and it's probably a 10 15 minute walk away from my house and i'll just go there in the summer times you know during the day and tickets are like six bucks and you just sit down and watch some baseball it's a great time i love it yeah, the the food is great, and just uh, you know, buy a beer and and sit back and relax. It, it's it's fun to go to. I mean, a lot of people think it's boring, but maybe it's you know just just me. But I, I really am captivated every time I go to a ball game. Yeah, I, me too. I, I I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, so this is sort of a hypothetical for you, but if you could go on vacation tomorrow like for one week and not taking into account like any travel restrictions money or anything like where would you go who would you go with and and what would you do probably hawaii i've never been there um good choice yeah i i just uh you know the beach the the relaxation part I, i i haven't been on too many vacations where i'm just lying on the beach and, and relaxing and um it, it looks really nice there <laughs> have you have yeah you ever been there i have not been to hawaii um it's definitely on my wife and i's bu- bucket list uh hopefully it's at the at the top of the bucket list because we she you know i never was a like beach vacation kind of person mm-hmm. but recently she's really turned me on to it it's like it's really nice you just go there <laughs> And you sit on the beach and you have nothing to do and you just enjoy the surroundings and it's just like really relaxing. It's really nice. So I, I think I'm with you on the on the Hawaii or some similar tropical vacation. Um, I used to be a fan of the like cultural. I mean, I still am, but um, you know the historic cultural kind of vacations where you sure, go sure. and you see nice places. You know, like Europe or uh, I've always wanted to go to Japan, but. But uh, especially with all this being inside, I just, man, I would, I would give a lot to just go to some exotic location and just lay on the beach for a week. That would, that would be really nice. Yeah. Not have to worry about washing your hands after everything. (laughs) Yeah. People just bring you food and drinks and you just just relax. Oh yeah. You just relax and just have a good time. Yeah. That sounds, sounds good to me. Would you, would you go with anybody or just, just chill by yourself? Uh, I'd probably bring a bunch of friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just get a get a nice group together and just go have a ball. That sounds sounds great. Well, Ben, thank you so much for for joining us today. I I know it's been a little bit of a sporadic talk through through your life and career, and I'm 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 glad to get to know more about you and and of course all the great things that you're doing with your festival. And before I leave you, do you have any last words, shout outs, pieces of advice, words of wisdom? Uh, whatever you want it's 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 your time sure um you know just to all you listening to to everybody listening out there you know just stay motivated during this time i I know it's it's hard to to do that and 
you know, this this will all come to an end, at least the the coronavirus part. Yeah, just stay safe and, and healthy and and keep keep practicing. Yeah, great words of advice. And and one way to stay motivated is, of course, to check out Ben's new festival, the Clarinet Maestro. So make sure to give them a like on Facebook and check out their website, maybe uh, sign up for some sessions. Um, and once again, Ben, thank you so much for, for joining us. I've, I've always really esteemed you as a, as a friend and a colleague and and uh, admired you as a player. And I, I'm, it's been a real joy for me to watch your career unfold and and how successful you've been and you know i i i know this will happen at some point but i can't wait uh to play together with you again sometime and yeah absolutely yeah thanks yeah thanks for thanks for joining me today so uh for our new listeners out there please make sure to like us on facebook follow us on instagram at the candid clarinetist and follow us on twitter at candid underscore clarinet once again i am sam rothstein and thanks for tuning in to the candid clarinetist (laughs) Thank you.